Welcome to On the Other Side, where we talk crypto, culture, and society, and how crypto might shape society and change how real humans live their actual lives. Every week, we have on cool people from the crypto world to talk about what they're building and what the implications of that might be for real human beings. I am here with Tina He from Pace Capital, who's also working on Station. Tina, thank you so much for coming on the show. Of course. Thank you for having me. I am so excited to chat about a bunch of the things that you're working on and thinking about. Before we dive into all of that, do you want to give a little bit of background on you, what you're working on, and some of the things that are on your mind? Yeah, totally. So I joined Pace Capital from another venture firm called NEA, which is a traditional large institutional venture firm. And the reason why I'm in venture is actually, I've been actually a product designer for the the beginning of my professional career. Even since I was in college, I, I built a bunch of products. But what I've always been fascinated by is how the internet enable a long tail of creators to basically coordinate and organize among themselves and basically create the cities and ecosystems that we're seeing on the internet, but how those people are never really fairly compensated for the work that they do besides the power of internet of being able to match long tail supply with long tail demand. So kind of with that question in mind, I'm, I'm just trying to understand from a business model perspective, like what is happening? So that was kind of the question that I had going into venture. And even when I was in venture, I focused majority of my time on product growth, creator driven software. Um, developer tools. So a lot of the companies that have this bottoms up motion, and now I'm arriving at pace, my focus has kind of completely shifted towards Web3, because that was the moment when I think a lot of those questions start to really find answers. To be quite honest, like blockchain as technology has been around for a few years, but it's not till recently when the ability that token economy and the ability to organize people in the bottoms up manner really manifest until I think recently, it can be a result of many factors. So right now, I think it's it's a very interesting time in history. So I'm spending majority of my time focusing on this area. And yeah, I'm also building station, which is trying to be the train station of the internet to transport people from Web 2 to Web 3 or from traditional industry to understand the power of decentralized technology in a way that it's buzzword free and it's it's not too archaic or difficult to navigate. And yeah, it's, it's super exciting, but I can delve into station later and talk a little bit more about that. But that's what I've been working on. Yeah, I would love to hear the motivation behind starting Station. I think it's such a cool project. Yeah, totally. So in the beginning, it was really about a lot of friends, to be honest, like asking me, how do I get into Web3? And I think many of us have encountered the similar situation where, you know, all of a sudden the entire world is like asking, what is crypto? What is NFT? What is all of that that's happening? But the most interesting thing is actually the highest quality talent working at these big tech companies, working in some of these really, really amazing functions in like financial industries. They are actually starting to ask really critical questions, examining the crypto economy and, and all the things that's happening in, in here. And a lot of the questions they're asking are critical rather than skeptical, which I find very, very valuable in, in the world of crypto, which I've been somewhat a part of it's it's very very optimistic the energy is great um 
But sometimes it also needs a more nuanced view of the hard questions being asked, although it sometimes might come off as like a party pooper or you know, <laughs> the hard questions. But I actually think those will actually make the crypto ecosystem a lot more resilient. Um, I think that's part of the motivation is how do we get these amazing people to start, you know, writing these really thoughtful proposals in these governance forums. And for the ones that have successfully transitioned, they've done a tremendously great job. And a lot of them actually follow the principle um, that I believe is very true in crypto. It's like, forget about your history, forget about your identity, forget about your past and your prestige, all of that. Just show show your work and your contribution. And that is what defines who you are. So kind of the, the philosophy around station is really in the future, professional work or personal development really will start to unravel at the point of contribution. So like, what does it mean to contribute to other people in the ecosystem? Like, what does it mean to contribute to a larger network? You know, what is your role? And contribution is such a action-oriented unit where, you know, the aggregation of them can, can create data that previously were really hard to aggregate because all these platforms are siloed. And, you know, rather than everything flows back to a interoperable identity that is or the aggregations of your private keys. And, and, and that is so fascinating to me because basically there's an opportunity in time that you're basically rethinking the relationship between the work that you do, you perform, the labor that you contribute on the internet to your identity. And that is a way of self-expression that previously were not really possible on marketplaces like Fiverr or Upwork or even on a professional network like LinkedIn. Because LinkedIn, a lot of time, is a digitization of your professional network in the real world. And you have to be geographically present in a place to actually be a part of that network. Um, so, you know, going to the same school, working at in this similar companies versus in a lot of these Crypto companies and protocols, they discover talent from their Discord channels, from their, their GitHub repo, from maybe Dribbble, which is a little less common, but I, I've heard some of the protocol founders also use that to discover talent. So it's, it's very obvious it's become a lot more meritocratic and, you know, using Twitter to find community managers and, and all these examples. But there's really not a, a real platform to discover talent in, the, in a very digitally native way. I mean, there are some Web2 companies that attempt to do so as well, but the core of the problem actually can be most elegantly solved with Web3 because of that interoperable reputation and, and the credential that you can build across all these activities that you're performing across all these protocols, which right now are, are quite siloed. So that's a longer kind of explanation of why I think the team at Station and myself is like so enamored by this idea. I love that. And one of the things that I thought was really cool about the way that you guys are thinking about this is this idea that you do have skills, let's say you're a designer, that can be useful in Web3. It's not just like this entirely new world where everything is different. I really loved that you're taking a crypto native approach that also acknowledges that people have skills already that can be used and applied in Web3 in ways that would be beneficial for everyone. I absolutely love that. Totally. I 100% agree. It's it's just about translation. I think similar things were happening in the early days of the internet where writers didn't know their place in the world, like graphic designers didn't know their place in the world. And, and they all kind of pivoted into product managers, product designers, um, and these roles in the tech industry. But now it's actually much more exciting in Web3 because a lot of those transitions can happen globally. If you are a really smart analyst based in 
let's say like Indonesia and you previously didn't have chance to become like a hedge fund manager at Bridgewater. Now you can contribute to Yearn or contribute to one of these decentralized protocol if you're really good at what you do. And I think the hard thing about Web3 becomes actually optionality where you're like trying to discover what is that thing that I'm uniquely capable of doing. And, and everyone has something like that. And so totally resonate with what you're saying about developing the awareness that, okay, I have something to contribute and then finding that thing, which right now is really hard. And it's also part of the things that, you know, Station is trying to trying to solve. Yeah. And one of the things that I think is most interesting about that optionality is being able to find your community and the people who you vibe with, whether they're in a completely different city, continent, whatever it may be. Something that this different world allows us to do, I think, which you get into in your piece about the new frontier of belonging, is this idea that we're creating these digital communities where we feel like we belong in ways that we never really have been able to before. And this was a piece I was telling you before we started recording that just like so deeply resonated with me because it does feel like in Web3, we're finding our tribes almost and finding the the people and the places that we feel super deeply connected with. Can you give a little bit of background on that piece about the new frontier of belonging and, and what inspired that? hundred percent. So I've been thinking about this piece, the actual articulation of the piece happened recently, but I've been thinking about this idea, I think since probably six, seven years ago. So I've always been a big fan of literature and I like to go to literary festivals or bookstores around the world. A moment hit when I was in Japan, in Tokyo, actually, and there's a bookstore called Tsutaya. It's like one of my favorite bookstores. They kind of invented this idea of a lifestyle bookstore that before Amazon was a thing, people didn't think about, you want to put cafe, you want to put like personalized recommendation in the bookstore. Um, so next to a cookbook, they would recommend pans, they would recommend like cooking they will recommend mm. all these things that you know buy with the people that would like this type of cookbook so it's almost like personalized recommendation algorithm before you know <laughs> e-commerce took over the world and it's very fascinating how people who read Hemingway have a very strong correlation with people who also love like the pistol culture like the hardcore mm. culture and they group all of those items together and people who appreciate like ceramics, people who appreciate like craft, who also appreciate a samurai knife. And that is so common, right? Like I think previously I was a designer and, and I swear to God, like every single designer in the Bay Area love matcha, love bottle, <laughs> love like Japan, love Ireland. It's, it's just like these little stereotypes actually transcend its geographic boundaries. And that's the moment when I realized it's like, oh, the taste is something that's borderless. And internet actually helped us discover that there's people around the world that are similar to us, right? Like, you know, it doesn't take that much than looking at K-pop fan group. Fandom is truly international and, and they're just like united with the same love for something similar. And they're hyper efficient about bottom sub coordination of behavior. And I was like, wow, this type of fervor would be so effective if you want to actually create some cultural or social or, or economic movement. So basically... Since that trip, I think I just cannot stop thinking about it for literally the past six, six, seven years and have always believed that culture is one of the things that can really unite people with different point of view, people from different backgrounds, and, and is one way that we can find belonging. But that was more like a hobby or something that you know, people do in midnight. They go on subreddit to find their people around the world or they, they have different hobbies in order to achieve that. But with 
potentially some of these Web3 business models that are emerging. Um, you actually can create viable businesses and have digitally native currencies to support both the financial and the social infrastructure that enable this type of belonging. So that is the whole thread around <laughs> the, the, the kind of genesis of that idea. I love that. And part of the reason I think it resonated with me is I've been thinking a lot about the metaverse and like, what does it mean to live really in the metaverse? And are we already in it? And part of what I have been thinking a lot about is I never used to use Twitter. Like I was not into Twitter. And over the past few months, I've been getting way more into Twitter because that's where everyone in crypto is and all that. And it's starting to feel in a strange way, like Twitter and my friends on Twitter are like home in a weird way. And I think that's something that's been marinating in my head a little bit. And I think that's part of the the reason that this piece was so interesting too, is it's almost this sense of home digitally that to your point, probably never would have been possible if something like DAOs didn't exist, where you can support yourself financially with people who you really enjoy in a completely digital landscape. And to me, that was like, oh my goodness, that's so interesting. And one of the things that I really loved about this was this emphasis on on the feeling of belonging. I'm curious, what do you think creates that feeling? That's a superb question. Um, I think there's many layers of what consists a sense of belonging. I think there's definitely people that professionally or in the academic setting study that in a very extensive way. But I'm just speaking from probably my own intuition. There's probably a few layers to that sense of belonging. One is a shared um, context or shared language, uh, meaning that you're actually speaking in a similar way. And I think that is very undervalued because I, I swear to God, like developers around the world will have more to talk about than like the developer to a business person, for example, versus the global MBAs or the global people in finance have their own way of speaking to each other. And I've always been fascinated by linguistics itself as a moat. So in some way, the reason why financial industry needs to make things extremely complex when it's a division, like all these ratios, right? <laughs> it's like a more effective way to communicate, of course. But at the same time, it's also making something very simple, unnecessarily complex. And you basically, by speaking these languages, you basically sound like you are superior than the people who are not speaking those languages. And that has been the case throughout history. Like aristocracy or like people in a higher class usually speak very differently than you know people who come from a different background so i've always been fascinated by this idea of like language as a as a social status or as a as a as a class differentiator or as a as a, as a group of belonging again so i think that there's a lot to research or, or think about there but i do think that right now right in crypto very tangibly this like good morning culture like everyone's like gm gm every day and it's actually amazing like sometimes i'm like i just do a gm on my instagram and like all the people that responded to that is like my crypto friends versus if I probably say something else. Like if I take a picture of a aesthetic coffee shop, my, my designer friends are going to reply to that. Mm -hmm. So it's, it's almost like both visual language and the actual memes, right, are, are ways for people to, to feel like they're part of a tribe. And that is true throughout history. But I think that here, because, you know, internet is completely global and crypto is a very global phenomena, that that language itself is uniting a lot of people and create a sense of belonging. And the other is a shared mission and a purpose, which is pretty obvious, but it just wasn't as prominent 
in the past as it is now, where someone with a very, very strong point of view is much more likely to attract a large following than someone with a nuanced view. To an extent that now people with nuanced view, I think, is still slowly starting to, to get a little bit more traction or, or have a little bit more of a um, resonance because people are kind of tired of that extremism. But either case, right, those narratives work really well because they catch the attention and they, they understand the leverage of distribution where by putting out a message and being consistent with that message, you're able to attract a large group of followers or maybe peers as well that are able to kind of coordinate at scale. So the ability to be a part of that mission, I think has been like always very, very compelling. Like any of the, the authoritarian regime, right? When you're in it, like people die for it. People would sacrifice their life for it, for that mission. But when you take a step back and, you know, look at history from a more kind of top down or objective point of view, it, it just shows that actually a lot of things that's happening in crypto are just anthropology. <laughs> um, it's actually just a reflection of human behavior, but you are able to, because of internet, like you're able to trace them in a much more transparent way than it was in the past. So yeah, so basically back to your question about what creates the sense of belonging, I do think that like strong narratives and mission plus share context and language are probably the two biggest thing that I think is happening right now. And yeah, and those are very, very powerful forces. Yeah, that's so interesting. I also feel like part of that shared mission almost feels like individuals' ability to identify with it Mm -hmm. is stronger when it's like very clear. I'm curious how you think about identity in all of this. I was listening to an interview that you did with Alicia on the Crypto Native podcast, and you said something really interesting, which was like, when we transport people, and you were talking about it in the context of Station, but I think it applies to Web3 in general, how do we give them a sense of identity and how do we define that? I'm super curious how you think about identity in Web3 when it comes to these sort of little micro communities where you feel like you belong. Totally. That's a, such a great question. To be honest, this is like what I think about these days all the time, because just like in real life, it's a very powerful thing to see your friends and people transform themselves. I mentioned this in Alicia's podcast as well, which is like the best CEOs and the best leaders, you know, in the world and some of the greatest thinkers are just like the ability to just be egoless and like put aside the sense of self and be able to reinvent themselves over and over again. Of course, you can't do that all the time because that's destabilizing <laughs> and also would create a lot of confusion to the people around you. But being able to do so in the amount of time where you're just completing a project is actually a very powerful thing, right? Like I would say a company that's evolving from like Series Seed all the way to IPO is probably five different companies or five different type of companies that you need that with different set of challenges that you need to face. And as a CEO, that's why a lot of CEOs leave after a certain stage because they just don't want to transform into that person because that's just not who they are. But if they are willing to transform, then they basically transcend into like someone new. It's not to say that they will compromise their fundamental values, but even sometimes their personality can really just change really dramatically. So back to your question about identity, I've been observing some of my really, really accomplished friends, like partners at these like huge hedge funds or partners at some prestigious venture firm in the past or just like this really great engineer, whatever their title is. When they're in crypto, they're willing to just go completely pseudonymous and build their reputation from the ground up. I find that just so fascinating because those are also the people who perform really, really well because they're willing to let all of that prestige go 
And because they are so self-assured that their identity is not actually tied to those things in the first place. As hard as it is from a lifestyle change perspective that like, oh, in the past, like people would really respect you. And now they're just getting shut on, <laughs> you know, in these <laughs> telegram groups by not knowing anything. <laughs> but they're willing to go through that. And that shows so much character and resilience. And I admire that really, really much, right? Because it just shows that they're willing to self-transform. And the ability to rebuild one's identity, the only way to do so is by, again, like I'm very biased here because I'm building station, but kind of our thesis is around contribution. And contribution is basically one of the ways that shows your identity the most. And this is the the, the idea around like what you do is who you are, not what you say you do is who you are, mm. right? Basically, contribution from our perspective means that if you like someone's post, that is a contribution. You're contributing to that person's social credit, mm. right? If, if you use like a calculus example, resume or like traditional professional profile is a static point. It's like, mm-hmm. you know, X, Y. But in this case, it's a changing variable. You're taking the differential equation of, of basically you're changing the rate of change of that variable rather than the variable itself. It's not about you are this 10 out of 10 founder and that's it. Another way to say this, like you're only as good as the last thing you did or the last deal you made in, in the world of venture. And you're this ever changing or ever evolving being. So basically actions in this case capture that so contribution like what you're doing on these platforms like how you're acting what kind of work are you uploading what kind of blog posts are you writing what code are you pushing what design are you making like these are the variables that kind of change who you are on the internet so that's kind of how we are perceiving it as a way to measure um, your identity that it's not completely reliant on one static point of data That is a fascinating way to think about identity and actually almost resolves some cognitive dissonance that I've had recently around what it means to like go anonymous, you know? Um, Yeah. It's (laughs) because I've been like, I like, it's such a weird feeling and uncomfortable. And I think the reason is exactly what you're saying, which is it's reinvention. Mm -hmm. Like that's part of why it's uncomfortable. That's kind of blowing my mind a little bit. Totally. It is self-reinvention. I don't think it's necessary, to be honest. I don't think everyone needs to do that to be a very useful contributor in crypto, but it definitely does put you in the mindset of someone with the empathy of someone who never had any prestigious background, right? Someone maybe from emerging market who became really prominent because of the internet and, and understanding why they care about it so much, like why they're able to become thought leaders in the space. And like, even after it becomes successful, continue to give back, like what those people are going through and why they believe in the mission so much. I feel like being really in their shoes can can give you that level of empathy, which makes you a better contributor in the ecosystem. So I think that's actually more important than the actual performative act of just going pseudonymous because everyone else in crypto is, and it's like a status flex, which I think is also happening. And I can't blame, <laughs> I can't blame that. But I think in the essence, that's actually what's the most inspiring. I think that's happening in Web3. Yeah, I love that that almost does foster a sense of empathy in a lot of ways. And I also think this idea of identity as being something that's transient, essentially, is almost like what that gets at is interesting because I've been thinking a lot about, let's say that you do create an anonymous account. The moment that you build up a following, some of the challenges that come with an existing identity start to come into play. So if you are doing it because you want to be able to express yourself freely – even building up a following or an on-chain resume might actually still pigeonhole you into a certain version of you that you've begun to demonstrate, if that makes sense. Mm-hmm. And so this this is something that I've been thinking about, and it feels like 
by thinking about identity as something that's going to be transient no matter what, it's almost like an inevitability. And even if you don't intentionally reinvent yourself, that's probably what you're going to do anyways. Mm-hmm. So maybe it's better that we just accept that way of existing in the world and run with it rather than worrying about exactly what that looks like at any given time. Yeah. You put it very, very well. Yeah. I think that's a beautiful capture of this new paradigm to think about identity. Yeah. In, in Web3 for sure. Yeah, that's like blowing my mind a little bit. I'm also curious how you think about all of this in the context of what feels like very rich social interaction. So something that I've been thinking about in the context of DAOs is that as much as creating a new version of you is interesting from an individual perspective, in the context of DAOs and collaborating together to create something interesting with other people, I have, I think, a little bit of a almost like I don't know how to think about something like identity and reinventing yourself as someone who is anonymous in that context because it feels like the interpersonal aspect of working in DAOs is still super important. Mm. I'm curious how you think about that. Yeah. I think there is a more dystopian answer or maybe it's just the matter of fact. Is I feel like in the future, like self-reinvention and almost like role-playing will become mm. a big part of being good at the internet. Or like being a, a worker or a contributor of the internet is the ability to understand your role in the ecosystem and, and basically create a consistent narrative where you are differentiated um, because of that role that you're playing. And in many ways, not to say that this is inauthentic, it's just to say that that would become a skill just like in the past, like maybe public speaking was a skill mm-hmm. where you have to impress a large group of audience in real life. That skill would still be valuable. But on the internet, in these Discord groups, I start to realize that like the most charismatic leaders in these groups, you don't really know if they're a public speaker or not. You don't really know mm-hmm. what they are in real life, but they know how to play the game extremely well. Maybe it, it is actually who they are in real life, and it's just a very authentic expression of that. Or it could just be a very consistent execution against the role that they're playing. So if you violate that expectation, usually people will be like, think that you're inauthentic. But if you can just continue to execute against that, it inevitably built trust. And the community would just make memes about this person, would make sticker pack around this person. <laughs> and that's how like leadership is formed in these communities, is that they are willing to let the community project a narrative upon them. And then they know that this is what they want to see. So they would continue to feed into that role continuously. And it works the best when you actually believe that (laughs) or else it's a role that potentially could collapse at some point and no one can live like that forever. So if the two things actually align really well, you're an authentic person, but you also are very, very consistent in that online persona that you're constructing and the values of the two align. So Vitalik, I think, might be a good example of that, right? He doesn't talk as much as like traditional business leaders. He does give many, many inform- informative talks. But I will say that a lot of his presence is writing, right? Like blog posts or engaging with people in the, on the internet. And that is is super, super um, powerful if you see the two really align. But he continues to contribute and like kind of relentlessly. So yeah. I don't know if that actually answers the question. No, that does. That's really interesting. So I like to think a lot about these, and I think think you also probably do, but like these aspects of what does the human experience of Web3 look like five, 10 years from now? Do you think that part of people feeling fulfilled in Web3 will be finding roles where 
what they are supposed to be or what people project onto them is actually who they are. Hmm. That's a great point. I hope not completely because then like people would just start to live the way that they are perceived, mm. um, which is not great. But at the same time, that's also how the physical world works too. It takes time for people that haven't formed a strong sense of identity to just live in a way that is as a, almost as like reactive to other people's expectation. And I can see that happening in Web3 too. I don't think in like in just because technology has changed, identity is completely immune of that. But I do think that what Web3 uniquely enables is optionality is that if that person ever find out that like okay like i'm done with living by other people's rules they can just self-transform more easily and with lower cost both from a social capital perspective and from a financial capital perspective because in the real world you, you your identity is tied to the, the nation state i think that is actually what's more important than whether this person actually has, has the capacity of finding themselves um, in Web3. But I do think that if there's more data right now in Web3 and, and hopefully there's more better tools being built to help you discover um, other people, which I think Web2 actually does pretty well. It's like social media and all these platforms are, are pretty good. Like Twitter is pretty good at finding like-minded people. But the idea of actually, as you mentioned, like create economic value and, and actually are able to create a sustainable um, way of coordinating resources and generate a, a actually life-sustaining income definitely is something that uh, wasn't as possible in the past because of the, the lack of technolo technological and financial infrastructure. Yeah, I love the idea of optionality being almost something that frees people yeah. to figure out who they are. And maybe in an optimistic view of Web3 and a few like buy into the idea that most people will work for multiple DAOs and, and that's sort of mm -hmm. how a lot of people will sustain themselves. Maybe there is a world in which that optionality allows people to explore what they actually want and yep. create space for that in a way that we've just never had before. Totally. That would be like, I think, the ideal world. Where you, and maybe even it becomes yeah. maybe not economically beneficial because I think we tend to fall back a lot on economics and capitalism in crypto, which I'm not sure is, is the best way to think about it. But somehow we discover that it's actually most beneficial for us to find what we actually want to do. Not in like a sci-fi, scary, dystopian way, but in a true sort of human way. Yeah, took us a while to get there, but <laughs> the, the, the Web3 community right as in now definitely gave us some hope. So really, really excited about um, everything that's happening. Yes. All right. Well, before we wrap up, I have a segment at the end of the show that is, what is your favorite thing in your wallet? It can be an NFT, a token, Ooh. anything, but what is your favorite thing in your wallet? Huh? My favorite thing in my wallet? I mean, that's a really tough answer because, okay, I have a couple favorites. So like my profile picture on Twitter right now is this project called Neural Nouns. So recently the noun style, right? Then So it's like this computationally generated, I guess, avatar project that recently blew up because it's like computationally unique. So every day there's a new um, one being minted and they form a DAO around it. So all the proceeds would, you know, go to the DAO and the people who bid on it would kind of, also get compensated accordingly. And there's a really in interesting incentive design around that project. And one thing that I find very interesting is that this project is actually very um, encouraging of, of um, 
derivatives, they actually openly welcome imitations, which I think is a very cool idea. Because if you look at innovation and what what makes innovation so special is that you know people's idea remixes and build upon someone else's idea, and that's how innovation happen. But you know, I think originality is is just a form of taking someone else's idea and kind of spin it a little bit, and that's how progress made. And being able to kind of be open minded to that idea, I think it's it's basically represented really beautifully through this project where any derivatives being formed from the noun style like if the artist choose to they can basically design a mechanism where part of that revenue of that sale will go back to the original DAO so in that sense you're basically creating this like original IP and then you can create all these derivative IP that would continue to support original IP but also allow people that want to create derivatives to also make an income that they don't have to be the original idea creator and this model actually will apply so well with fan art, especially mm. fan art, anime fan art, and all these models. And if you know someone building that, like, let me know. I think that <laughs> it's going to be so huge. But I think like the Nouns project embody a lot of these spirits that I, I really admire. Uh, so I think that's probably my one of my favorite NFT in my wallet right now. That's really cool. I love that. I was just talking with um, someone about this, about how even on Twitter, we see this where people like really build on each other's thoughts. And that's kind of amazing. I mean, that's, it's like composition of thought, but it compounds yeah. with people and that being unlocked in the art world. And then also making that sustainable from an economics perspective is like a massive unlock. So that's, totally. a, that's a cool one. I like that. Totally. Totally. Well, thank you so much for coming on the show. It was so awesome to chat. Truly, like, you're making me rethink how I've been thinking about identity. Where can people find you? You can follow me on Twitter. <laughs> I feel like <laughs> this is the, the shameless plug. But yeah, my, my handle is FKPXLS. It's fake pixels. But taking out all the vowels because I live in New York and all the all the brands in New York just don't have <laughs> these vowels. So yeah, so FKPXLS is my handle. And Amazing. Yeah. Well, thank you so much for coming on the show. It was so awesome to chat. Amazing. Thank you, Chase. If you like what you heard, please make sure to rate and subscribe to the podcast. I always forget to do this for podcasts I like, but it's actually super useful. Also, if anything resonated with you or if you want to continue the conversation, hit me up on Twitter. I'm at Chaser Chapman. I absolutely love talking about these things. Thanks again for listening.